So we are starting a new series this morning. If you have a Bible, open up to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, you may have noticed, we're actually giving away free journaling Bibles as you come in, that you can go through this whole series in Mark. And our hope is that you would be saturated in the Word of God. Absolutely saturated in the Word of God, because we believe in the Word of God, He transforms us. In fact, this verse came to mind as I was uh, sitting here singing, uh, and it comes from Hebrews. It tells us that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from God's sight. That is the word of God. So if you want to pick up a Gospel of Mark, a journaling Bible, please grab one as you head out. But before we dive into our passage, let's pray together this morning. God, we believe this to be true that you are God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, eternally God in three persons from all eternity. And you, God, have revealed yourself to us. You have shown us who you are in your word. And God, we pray by that word you would pierce our hearts this morning, that this would not be a dead word, but it would be, as you say it is, a living and active word, which intends to change us, which intends to discern our thoughts. And God, by that, would you make us people who not only believe in Jesus, but wholeheartedly follow him as the Savior of the world and our Lord into eternity. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, this is really exciting. Uh, We're starting this new series in Mark, and I see a a bunch of new faces here this morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name's Daniel. one of the pastors here at Deer Creek Church. And uh, I'm a pastor. I've been a pastor for, uh, I believe, about seven years now, married uh, to my wife, Hannah, And Hannah's side of the family says she is the better half. And uh, my side of the family says she is the better half. So uh, I don't know why they say that. I think I'm pretty unique. But we've been married... We've been married for 10 years. We have four kids, uh, ranging from the ages of seven down to three. So we're kind of in that stage of parenting right now where names mix together. You know, one of the kids gets in trouble and you say, Lainey, no, Jane, Annie... Eli, please clean up your room. Um, So that's the kind of the stage that we're in at the moment. And it's actually kind of an improvement as well. When we used to live in Nashville, we had cats. One of our cats' name was Maggie, and Maggie was a troublemaker. And usually when Lainey would do something that was a little bothersome, I would say, Maggie, stop it. I mean, Lainey, stop it. Um, So, you know, I've actually improved a little bit. I don't call my kids cats' names. So this morning, all that to say, you know, if I stutter and ramble, uh, it's because that's just kind of the stage of life we're in at the moment. And uh, this morning, if, if uh, you're just joining us, really we do this every week. We, we study the Bible. And we like to study mostly consecutively through books of the Bible, taking one of the 66 books of the Bible and going from the beginning of that book and taking one section piece by piece going all the way through to the end. And there's a number of reasons that we do that. I have 74 listed out right here. I'm just going to mention two, though. The first reason that we do that is doing that, teaching that way, really does keep us as pastors honest. You know, a lot of times, it's easy to just teach and preach on things that 
as pastors, we enjoy to talk about. And based on whichever pastor it is, it really can look differently. A lot of pastors like to teach on marriage, and some pastors like to teach on sin. Others teach about God's love. For some, it's justice and mercy. For others, it's end times prophecy. But what happens is when you teach consecutively through a book of the Bible, you're forced as a teacher You're forced as a preacher to cover everything that the Bible communicates, whether you really like it or not. And one of the reasons we like to do that, study through books of the Bible, is it keeps us honest. It prevents us from just teaching our pet projects or our hobby horses. The second reason that we do that, and I think this is really important, is it keeps the main thing of the Bible the main thing. Now, there's nothing wrong with teaching topical sermons. We teach topical sermons here. They are very appropriate at times. And you can teach on topics like anxiety or fear or marriage and divorce or addiction and stress. Those are important topics. But when you look at the Bible as a whole, when you look at it as a whole from beginning to end, it's interesting, even though we're really concerned about certain issues because we're facing them in the moment, When you compare those issues to other issues that the Bible cares about, you really see that what we are interested in is not quite as important as what God is interested in for us. So another way of saying that, instead of taking what we're interested in now and seeing what the Bible said about it then, what we want to do in studying through books of the Bible is we want to take what the Bible is interested in always and see how it applies to us now. That's our mission. That's what we want to see happen. So this morning, we're beginning a new study in the Gospel of Mark. It's the second book of the New Testament. If you have a Bible in front of you, maybe not one of the journaling Bibles that we handed out, but just a normal Bible in front of you, if if you don't know where the New Testament is, it's about two-thirds of the way through the Bible. And here's kind of a good rule of thumb. If you you go two-thirds of the way and you see a bunch of names that you can't pronounce, names like Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Amos, then you haven't gone far enough. Keep going. And once you start recognizing names like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're in the New Testament, okay? So Mark is the second book of the New Testament right after Matthew. And before we dive into his text, it's a good question to ask. Maybe some of you are wondering this. Who is Mark anyway? Who is Mark? After all, if you were to pick up a book on the Cold War, you would want to know, wouldn't you? Who is this author? What are her credentials? What are her sources? Did she witness the events that she's talking about? Or is she in contact with someone who did witness those events? So if you have that question, well, who is Mark? Why is he writing? That's an appropriate question to ask. And really, when we're looking at Mark, there's two sources of information for who Mark is. The first is the New Testament itself. The 27 books of the New Testament tell us a lot about Mark. And we know from those documents that Mark was a staple figure in the early church period. He's mentioned nine times throughout the New Testament. He was the cousin of Barnabas and traveled with Barnabas and Paul on their first missionary journey. He was also a close associate with Paul as well. So if you open up to the book of 2 Timothy, this was a letter that Paul had written to another pastor in Ephesus. His name was Timothy. And at the end of that book, 2 Timothy chapter 4 In verse 11, Paul is writing these personal instructions, and he's probably in prison at this time, and he writes, Luke is alone with me, 
But he tells Timothy, who's about to visit him, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. So you see, Mark was a close associate with Paul. He was useful for ministry to Paul. But maybe the thing that's most clear when you read the New Testament documents is that Mark had a very close relationship with Jesus' closest follower, whose name was Peter. You see that in 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 15. There, we see that Paul is writing this letter to another church. And he says, hey, there's greetings from this woman who's in Babylon, who is likewise chosen. She sends you greeting. And so does Mark, my son. So you see, that's how close Mark was with Peter. Obviously, Mark was not Peter's literal biological son, but he was his spiritual son, his protege, and his friend. So we know a lot by Mark just by looking at the New Testament documents. We know that Mark was a staple in the New Testament period, but we even know a lot of stuff outside of the New Testament. I'll give you one example. There was a man by the name of Papias. He wrote in 90 AD, and he was writing about why Mark wrote his gospel. And he wrote this. John the Presbyter, that's John the Apostle, John the Presbyter used to say, Mark indeed, who became the interpreter of Peter, wrote accurately as far as he remembered them, the things said or done by the Lord, but not, however, in order. For he had one object only in view, that is to leave out nothing of the things which he had heard and to include no false statement among them. So you see what Papias is saying. According to the apostle John, Mark was a close friend of Peter and Mark was Peter's interpreter. Mark wrote down, what Peter knew about Jesus as accurately as he possibly could, he was also careful to not include any false statements that couldn't be verified by witnesses to the life of Jesus. That's who Mark is. A staple figure in the early church in the New Testament, known by those both inside and outside of Christian circles, and a close friend of Barnabas, Paul, John, and Peter. And so as we dive into Mark, we're going to look at chapters one th- or chapter 1, verses 1 through 11 this morning, and you can follow along if you have it open in front of you. This is Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, the Word of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water... Immediately he saw that the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased is the word of God. When I was a a newer Christian, 
uh, and maybe not even a Christian yet, when I was first reading the Bible, I, I had all sorts of assumptions about what the Bible was. Maybe some of you can relate. I used to think that the Bible was kind of this, you know, esoteric, super spiritual sayings, kind of like ancient guru puzzle sayings. And because that was the case, I didn't even know how to open the Bible or read it. So one person told me, well, the way that you do it is you find your name in the Bible. And so I found my name in the Bible, Daniel. And so I opened up to the book of Daniel and I thought, well, I'll read chapter 10 because I was born in October. And then because I was born on the 18th, I'll read Daniel chapter 10, verse 18. And then I read it and I scratched my head because I was like, that makes absolutely no sense. Just confirming what I had already thought about the Bible, that it was, you know, esoteric, super spiritual sayings. But you can kind of tell, right, when you read the Bible like it's supposed to be read, you can tell from the passage we just read that the Bible reads pretty much like a story. It's basically what it is. It's a story. And so this morning to orient us in how to read the Gospel of Mark and to better understand it, I want us to just ask three questions. And this happened when you went in English class. Remember when you were going to read a story, you asked the questions who, what, where, when, why, how. Well, this morning we're going to ask three of those. We're going to ask what, namely what is the Gospel of Mark? What kind of book is this that we're reading? Who? Namely, who is this book about? Who is the main character of this story? And why? Why did Mark write this book? So you can see in verse 1, right off the bat, we can see what kind of book this is. Verse 1, Mark is quick to tell us that what he is writing is considered a gospel. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And now that word gospel that Mark is using there, it wasn't new Gospel was, gospel was a familiar term. It simply meant good news. It was the Greek word euangelion, which meant good news. And it was a word that would have been used by messengers. When a king would go out to war and he'd fight in an ancient, or, or sorry, in a distant country, if this king won the battle, he would send a messenger back to the kingdom and they would go back with an euangelion, with good news that the king has conquered. It was an announcement of victory. The king had conquered and the battle had been won. And as you read Mark's gospel, his good news, it, it takes a unique form. It takes the form kind of of what we would consider today a biography. It recounts the life of Jesus around the year 30 A.D., it speaks about his life and his ministry, some of his great miracles, his teachings, but it focuses centrally on his crucifixion and ultimately his death. If you look at the Gospel of Mark, and, and you can do this if you have it open in front of you, and just look at it from a 30,000-foot view, you notice the first 10 chapters of Mark outline three years of Jesus' life. Three years of Jesus' life. But then the final six chapters of the Gospel of Mark spend all of their time focusing on just the last week of Jesus' life. The narrative slows down as if to get us to focus on Jesus' last week culminating in his crucifixion. So Mark's gospel is a biography, but it's a biography that's pointed toward and driving toward the last 24 hours of Jesus' life when he was crucified by Jewish authorities and the Roman government. It's as if Mark is saying, hey, the most crucial thing you have to take from this are these last final chapters, these last 24 hours in Jesus' life. If you want to kind of think of a modern parallel, anybody here watch Lost? Okay, uh, I've won a lot of Emmys. Uh, but in Lost, right, it's six seasons long, 
But every episode was really driving toward the final episode, right? The whole six series or six seasons in that last episode, the last one, it contained really the totality and the fullness of the entire series. And if you did watch Lost, I still can't explain the ending. I don't know what it's about. I'm still a little confused myself. So that's what Mark is writing. Mark is writing a gospel, an announcement of victory, the victory of Jesus that reads like a biography. But there's a little bit of a wrinkle in this as well, because if you were to go to Barnes and Noble and pick up a biography today, you would know most biographies today, they're, they're passive works. And what I mean by that is most biographies tend to just convey dispassionate information. Biographies today don't make arguments or seek to challenge us in any way. They simply try to convey information so that you might know more about the life of Dwight Eisenhower or Steve Jobs or Queen Elizabeth. They don't try to persuade you or challenge you. Instead, they're just passive. But if that's a modern biography, then the Gospel of Mark is of an entirely different species because... Mark's gospel of Jesus is a living and active biography of the life of Jesus. And I'll tell you on the front end, before we go into the gospel of Mark, Mark has an agenda. Mark has an agenda to convince you to not only know certain things about Jesus, but he wants you to believe in Jesus and challenge you to surrender your life to him, to actually follow Jesus on a path of discipleship. Mark wants you to seriously consider the significance of Jesus' life and how it might force you to change your own. I know this is probably the case with many of you if you followed Jesus for any number of years, but when I was a Christian in college, I would read the Bible and I would study to understand the Bible, but there came a day, and it was early on in our marriage, my my wife and I's marriage, we were living in California at the time, and I was working at the Courtyard Marriott in Sherman Oaks, California as a front desk agent. And I would show up early every morning and I would go into the basement of the Courtyard Marriott because I had to beat traffic. If you've ever been to LA, you know what I'm talking about. But I would show up early, I'd be there at 5 a.m. and I'd be reading the Bible in the basement of the Courtyard Marriott. And there was something that happened. I don't know what it was. I can't really explain it in other than these terms. But as I read the Bible, and specifically the Gospels of Jesus, They came alive to me in a way that is actually hard to describe. The best way that I could probably describe it is this. You know, before that day, I read the Bible and tried to analyze the Bible. But really on that day and every day since, I've had this sense that the Bible was actually reading and analyzing me. That the Bible was a living and active thing that actually intended to change me and shape me. I was reading this story in 2 Kings, and I remember at that time I was really, really critical of Christianity, and I would write down, you know, ways that I thought the Bible contradicted itself. And as I was reading this passage in 2 Kings, I can't remember the exact passage, but this is the most profound thought that I think I had ever had at the time. And I thought in that moment, if what I just read is true... I'm sitting here trying to contradict the Bible, and God's trying to contradict me. That was the sense that I had, that God was actually reading me and trying to deconstruct and challenge me in a way that I was actually pretty uncomfortable with at the time. Emile Callier uh, was a Princeton philosopher. He was an agnostic. He served in the French army in World War I. Uh, But 
Upon his return, he was in utter despair. He had lost a friend during the war, and he had actually uh, got shot at the end of World War I, and he was sent to a hospital. And as he was sitting in this hospital bed, he wrote, the inadequacy of my views on the world and the human situation overwhelmed me. He wrote that, what use is it, a philosophic banter of the seminar when your own buddy, at the time speaking to you of his mother, dies standing in front of you, a bullet shot through his chest. And as he was sitting there reading literature and philosophy in his hospital room, he said, however queer it may sound, I sat there longing for a book that would understand me. And he said he couldn't find it. No matter how much philosophy that he read, no matter how many uh, novels or literature that he read, he said he couldn't find that book that would actually understand him. So he started about on another task. Any time that he would come across a quote that resonated with him deeply, he would write it down in this journal in order to try and create a book that would understand him. And so he fills up this book full of quotes and he sits down one day and he's reading back through the book of quotes and all of a sudden disappointment came over Callier. Each quote, he said, reminded him of the circumstances in which he had chosen it, but things had changed. He said, then I knew that the whole undertaking would not work simply because this book was of my own making. And then it was at that moment that his newborn daughter was being strolled up to him by his wife, and in the bassinet that the baby was sitting in was a book of the Bible. And so he picked up the Bible, and he read it deep into the night, and the realization dawned on him. He said, Lo and behold, as I looked through the Gospels, the one who spoke and acted in them became alive to me. This is finally the book that understands me. See, That is the agenda of Mark. Mark, as he writes here in this gospel, does not want to just give you dispassionate information about Jesus. He actually wants to challenge you to meet the living Jesus through his writing. Mark wants you to seriously consider the life and death of Jesus and how it might force you to change as a result. So that's our first question. What? What is Mark writing here? What kind of book is he writing? He's writing a gospel. It's an announcement of good news, an active biography of Jesus written so that you might be challenged to consider your life in light of Jesus' life and death. There's a second question we want to look at is who? Who is this gospel about? Who is the main character of this story? And again, don't have to look far. You can see it in verse 1. Mark is very explicit. He says, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, it's been almost 20 years now, but... Many of you probably remember and maybe read the book, The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown. Came out in a movie as well, and it's, it's a mystery thriller. And what it did is it, it kind of offered this alternative religious history. What, what it did, the central premise of the book said that, you know, there's this idea that Jesus is truly God and that Jesus was not just a mere man, but he was truly God. But what the central premise of the book is, yeah, that all is a charade, And what the book claimed is that, yeah, Jesus was actually a mere man, but these two powerful religious groups, and in order to maintain power for themselves, what they did is they started elevating Jesus over time to the status of God in order to persuade gullible Christians in order to maintain power for themselves. 
It's kind of like a fish story, right? If you've ever heard of a fish story, somebody goes out and they catch a 14-inch carp in the Platte River near Santa Fe. And then over time, right, five, six, seven, eight weeks later, all of a sudden, that story evolves into a 31-inch trout that was caught in the Colorado River outside Glenwood Springs. That really is the premise of the Da Vinci Code, right? Jesus was just a mere man, but over time, people who wanted to accrue power for themselves started saying Jesus was God so that they could exert control over other people. And that book has sold over 100 million copies, and even though it's a work of fiction, you, all you have to do is go read blog posts or forums to realize, actually, that's the view many people have of Jesus, that he was nothing but a mere man who over time all of a sudden became the Son of God. There's only one problem with that premise. And here you have Mark, who wrote this very first gospel, the first biography of Jesus, and in his first lines, he doesn't say, Jesus, the mere man. He says, no, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in his very opening line. And in case you didn't know this, you know, Mark wrote his gospel, even the most skeptical and critical scholars will say, Mark wrote his gospel around the year 65 AD, which means Mark wrote this some 30 to 35 years after the death of Jesus. And that's important because what it means is that Mark is writing this gospel within the lifetime of eyewitnesses of Jesus. He's actually writing this gospel when people who lived with Jesus saw Jesus' miracles, heard Jesus' teachings, witnessed Jesus' crucifixion, witnessed his resurrection from the dead, they actually saw Jesus, which means everything Mark wrote down would have been subjected to intense scrutiny. Anybody who would have heard Mark say something, and if it was untrue, would have raised their hands immediately, wouldn't they? And they would have said, wait, no, it didn't happen like that. Jesus didn't say that. Jesus never did that. Jesus never claimed those things. And we can kind of understand this. Think about what happened 21 years ago to this date. It's September 11th, 2001. Now, that wasn't 35 years ago, but I guarantee that day is imprinted on every single person's memory in this room. Now, we know that that act of terrorism was carried out by a religious uh, extremist group in New York City and in Pennsylvania. And some of us, we can't forget the memory of that day. Now, if I were to come and tell you or to write a book or a blog post or make an article that said, you know what? What happened on September 11th, 2001 is that at 4 p.m., helicopters flew into the Empire State Building and then crashed into the White House. What would be the first thing that you would say? That didn't happen. It didn't happen that way. You, are, you have your facts wrong. That, that's not really what took place. You would call into question my testimony about what happened 21 years ago because those events happened in your lifetime. They happened with you as an eyewitness to those events. And here's Mark. He wrote this gospel biography within 30 to 35 years of the life and death of Jesus. And he's saying his main character, the one whom the whole gospel is revolving around, is Jesus. Not Jesus the mere man, but Jesus the God who became man. That's who he's writing about. 
And if you take a look back at our text, it's a little bit odd, but Mark actually starts in a weird place. Even though he, he says this is about Jesus, he starts with this character named John, but he really only does that to magnify Jesus more. Let me show you what I mean. Take a look at verse 4. Mark writes, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. So you see in these verses, John's in this desert wilderness. He's drawing in this large crowd from all over the Judean area. And He's doing this unique ritual of baptism, which signified people being washed away from their sins. And you read in verse 6 that John's a little uh, strange. John was clothed with camel's hair. He's wearing a leather belt around his waist, and he's eating locusts and wild honey. And this is not John's way of saying that if he lived in the 21st century, he would eat at Whole Foods and shop at Whole Foods. Everybody who eats and shops at Whole Foods looks this way, by the way. Uh, <laughs> No offense if you eat a full Whole Foods, of course. But <laughs> this is John's way of saying, this is a prophet. This is a prophet and not just any prophet. No, John is the promised forerunner messenger of God's Messiah, God's Christ, God's promised king who would come and reign over heaven and earth. For those of you who have run in any races like a half marathon or, or a marathon, they, they have this setup where they try and stagger all the runners so those who are really fast will be out in front and those who are a little bit slower will be back in the back. And they'll have these pacers who hold up these signs that show the time that people think that they're going to finish the race in. So, you know, there will be people kind of toward the front and they'll be holding up, you know, oh, this person's running a marathon in three hours, Right. And then they have another person who's like three hours and 30 minutes and then all the way back to 3.45 and four hours and four and a half hours and five hours. And the job of that pacer, right, is to go before the runners and they're supposed to announce all the people who are running in that group so that their loved ones and people who are watching the race know, oh, there's the four hour and 70 minute person, Daniel must be in that group, right? <laughs> And in the same way, throughout the Old Testament, that's five hours and ten minutes, by the way. <laughs> throughout the Old Testament, God made repeated promises that he would send this promised king that the Bible calls the Messiah, the Christ. And this Christ would be king of heaven and earth. And he would come, he would eliminate sin, he would crush Satan, he would eliminate darkness and suffering and pain. But before that great king came. He said he would send a prophet who would be his forerunner to prepare the way to announce his coming so that everybody would know the king is coming. And Mark's saying this John figure is that forerunner coming to prepare the way of God's Messiah, God himself to come and reign over heaven and earth. And that's why John is referred to as the forerunner of this prophecy of Micah. That's uh, verse 2. Micah had this prophecy 400 years before Jesus came, and God was telling his people through Micah, I'm sending my Messiah, and behold, I will send my messenger before his face who will prepare his way. And then he also references a passage in Isaiah, which was 700 years before the time of Jesus. 
And Isaiah came and said, There will be the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. That is who John is. He is the one in the wilderness. He is the forerunner of God, announcing the coming reign of God's kingdom, of God's king himself. And you see, John, this great prophet, this great promised forerunner of God, he tells us, verse 7 and 8, that he's not the point. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. That would have been a job for any servant, right? A servant would have been able to stoop down, take off the sandals of somebody before they came into your house. John's saying, I'm not even, I'm not even eligible to do that to this person. He goes on, he says, I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. See, John is the great prophet. But he says, there is another one coming after me, even though I am the great prophet. Jesus is greater. Jesus is the Christ. He's the king of heaven and earth. He's the son of God, taken on flesh. John had this great following, right? Judea, Jerusalem. But his role was simply to point those people to the living God, Jesus Christ. John baptized with water. Remember, it's a symbol of being washed from your sins, your sins being washed away. John makes it super clear. He says, no, Jesus will baptize you with the real thing, the Holy Spirit, and by his blood, he will wash away your sins if you turn back to him and repent. See, even though Mark's gospel begins with this treatment on John, it's only for the purpose of magnifying Jesus all the more he's the son of God and he is the Christ. That presents us with a serious challenge because, you know, many observers today place Jesus into different categories. Jesus, the great teacher. Jesus, the political figure. Jesus, the enlightened guru. Jesus, the mere man who was understood. Jesus, the interesting historical artifact. The shirt that says, Jesus is my homeboy. There's a lot of Jesuses out there vying for our attention. But if we take John on his own terms, we can't place Jesus in only those categories. After all, remember, who's writing this? This is Mark, writing within the lifetime of Jesus, writing under the observation of Jesus' closest companion, Peter. And he's saying, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the promised King of God, the true King of heaven and earth. So, if you believe Jesus was anything less than that, then we have a challenge before us. Who do you think he was? And what do you base that on? Who do you think Jesus was and what do you base that on? Because, again, eyewitnesses say that Jesus was the Son of God, the Christ, who died and was resurrected from the dead. So to say he's anything less than that would mean the burden of proof falls on you to answer that question. Who do you think Jesus is and what do you base those beliefs on? I'm pretty convinced that if you study Mark with us, if you join things like Christianity Explored and study Mark for yourself, you're going to find out pretty quickly that Jesus is who he said he was and who Mark said he was and who John said he was and who the whole Old Testament pointed toward who he would be. In fact, Anne Rice, she's a a novelist. She's deceased now, but she was an atheist for many years after losing her faith in college. But it was in studying the Gospels and studying scholars of the Bible that she came to this conclusion. She said in 2009, quote, 
The whole case for the non-divine Jesus who simply stumbled into Jerusalem one day and got crucified somehow. That picture which had floated in elite circles that I frequented as an atheist for 30 years, that case of that Jesus was never made conclusively. See, we base our beliefs about Jesus on many things, but I would challenge you, and as we study through Mark, I'll continue to challenge you, what do you base those beliefs on? So we've answered two of our questions. What? What kind of book is Mark writing? He's writing a gospel, an announcement of good news, this announcement of God's victory. And who? Who is this gospel about? Mark is clear. It's the good news of Jesus. Jesus, who's the Son of God who became man. Jesus, who's the promised Christ, the true King of heaven and earth. And that brings us to our final question, why? Why did Mark sit down and actually pen this? And I think you get a glimpse of that. Mark tips his hand in verse 9 about why he's writing this. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. When I first read this passage, ever first reading this passage, I I always thought of this when it said the heavens being torn open, and maybe you imagine this as well. It's kind of like, you know, the clouds separating, and then a dove kind of coming down like a leaf and serenely resting on Jesus. But that phrase, when it's used in the Bible, of the heavens being torn opened or rended apart, is much more significant. Whenever you see that, the heavens being torn open, it's the Bible's way of saying God is about to reveal himself. He's about to show us his character. God's about to show us what he is really like. And that's why Mark writes this gospel. Not just that we would know who Jesus is, but see the character of God in flesh as he walked among us some 2,000 years ago. And right here in Mark's opening scene, he shows the Son of God, the King of heaven and earth, doing something utterly surprising. He's going out to John, this great prophet, and being baptized. And you might wonder, why was Jesus baptized? Right? This is a baptism for repentance and confession and forgiveness of sins. Why would he do that? Wasn't he sinless? And the answer is an emphatic yes. But I think G. Campbell Morgan, the former pastor, put it well when he wrote this. In the hour of his baptism, Jesus identified himself with the multitudes who had been thronging out to baptism. He identified himself with the consciousness of sin, in repentance for it, in confession of it. In that hour of baptism, we see the most solemn and wonderful sight of the servant God, who came from Nazareth to take upon himself the burden of human sin and to count it as if it was his own. That's why Mark writes his gospel, so that we would see that This God in Jesus, who is indeed the beloved Son of God, the King of heaven and earth, he is also the servant God. He's the servant God who comes and he identifies with sinful humanity. He takes our sins upon himself, the burden of human sin, to bring his kingdom of forgiveness and mercy. I love the author. His name's Henry Henry Nouwen. And Henry Nouwen, uh, I was reading one of his books recently. Henry Nouwen was... uh, 
renowned biblical scholar. He worked at Harvard and other Ivy League institutions. He was known for his ecumenical work, written countless books. He's a prolific author. But Henry Nouwen, about 20 years ago now, started a new vocation, working with the mentally disabled. He said he wanted to leave that entire life behind him, the entire life of you know, self-glory and self-exaltation. Uh, and he said, I wanted to be among the type of people that Jesus would be among. And he said, after a number of years, not really wondering why he was there, why he would minister to people who were mentally handicapped, he said, I finally understood in that time the character of God. Because he realizes that our God is a servant God, the God who leaves his throne and identifies with the weak, the powerless, the broken. He identifies with the sinner. That's the character of God. Many don't know this. Nine years before the birth of Jesus, another king was hailed as Evangelion, as good news. It was Caesar Augustus. And Caesar Augustus, since he was hailed as a god, Augustus' birthday, they said, signaled the beginning of the good news that the Roman Empire, the Roman kingdom was finally being established on earth. And if you know about Augustus or you know about uh, Roman emperors, they established their kingdom in one way, through sheer force, through sheer power, through sheer military might. And he was a king who conquered and destroyed his enemies. And if you would have asked a first century Jew, what are you expecting about the coming Messiah, about God's Christ, about his king? They would have expected that kind of king, a God who came in power, a God who came in might, a God who would be like King David from the Old Testament, who would establish his kingdom in power and defeat all the enemies of God. Surely the true king of heaven and earth will come and he will conquer sinners and set that set themselves against God. But in Jesus, as the heavens are torn open, the true character of God is revealed. A king has come, not in power and in might, but a king who comes in humility and mercy, a king who does not establish his kingdom by conquering his enemies, but by laying his life down for them. A servant king, a servant God. C.S. Lewis once wrote, the world we live in is enemy-occupied territory. And Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say, in disguise and has inaugurated his great campaign of sabotage. God has taken on flesh to undertake a campaign of sabotage, reversing darkness by laying down his life, by defeating sin, by dying for sinners. So that's Mark's gospel. It's an announcement of the victory of Jesus, an announcement of good news, that he has landed, the king has landed, and he reveals the true character of God and his heart for you. The servant God who forgives sinners and lays down his life for them. He is the servant king who comes to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Let's pray. Dear God, uh, God, we are so grateful for your son, Jesus Christ, who is the son of God, who, who became man, who walked among us, who identified with us, who knows our weakness, who knows our pain, knows our struggles. He was the one who came and even knew our sin, not because he committed it, but he took it upon himself all the way to the cross. And God, we pray as we think about Jesus and consider his life that this would really challenge us. I pray for this study of Mark as we continue on in it that 
we would be confronted with who you say Jesus is and God be challenged to surrender our life to him, to place our faith in him. And for those who don't know Jesus here this morning, Father, I pray by your Holy Spirit you would reveal, reveal your son to him and them. And God, we pray this all in the name of Jesus, who is our Savior, who is the servant king of the universe. In his name we pray, amen.